This is the second Sunday after Christmas. A lot of times we don't get to preach on the second Sunday after Christmas because depending on where Christmas is located, you only get one Sunday after Christmas and then Epiphany hits January the 6th and um, there's a, a change. Let me just say at the beginning uh, that I will say this again a week from today. Christmas in its origins, in terms of the spiritual reflection of the people who developed the liturgical year, the sanctification of time, Christmas is the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. Father Thomas Keating talks a great deal about this uh, in his books about contemplative prayer. And Epiphany is the celebration of the manifestation of Christ to the world. In other words, Epiphany is the declaration by the church that the birth of Jesus has universal significance. And we believe that in the biblical witness, there are things, the visit of the Magi, a variety of things which indicate that the known world is, is made to, to look at, as though they believe that there's significance in this. So that's in Epiphany what the theme is. But we get a glimmer of some of this today. So reading through these Christmassy readings or readings about the Incarnation, here's what I decided to do. I think I'm going to do what, what they tell you not to do, and that is to do an, uh, an exegesis of all of the readings, to talk to you about what they, why they're important. But that the overarching sort of predicate to this sermon is the colic. It's one of my favorites, the prayer that we read. I should say this, too, as well. Collect comes from a Latin word, collecta, which means to gather the people. So the prayer that Mother McNeil prayed at the beginning of the liturgy is the prayer that sort of gathers people together. And if you've ever worshipped in a Mediterranean country, even today, you know that there's a certain amount of boisterous wandering around going on and a whole lot of things. And the collect kind of got everybody, you know, focused in a, in a, in a direction. I remember on uh, the Feast of St. Agnes in January 1975, I was in Rome at the Church of St. Agnes, which is the church where they bless the little lambs that are shorn to make the wool linings of the palliums that all bishops in the Roman church get after they're uh, ordained a bishop. And these stoles are laid on the tomb of Peter for two weeks. And then they're taken, so they bore all these little lambs sort of tied down on their side, like this. And some superannuated cardinal came in and stood up and hit the liturgy and, and blessed them. It was quite a, quite a scene, and, and uh, I still remember it, as you can tell. <laughs> but what was happening was, while that was going on, the priest was giving uh, singing lessons to the congregation about the because it was the new liturgy, and he was teaching them some new songs, which sounded kind of like Santa Lucia, only ecclesiastical to me. And so we were singing that, and then somebody was hawking the diocesan newspaper, and some little girl who was having a first communion was being photographed behind the altar with the flash bulbs. So you can, you know, Northern European. Christianity is somewhat more staid, and we're probably not the better for it, but there it is. <laughs> Here's the colic. 
O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, the restoration of the dignity of human nature. Some might say it is the, restora- it is the, the possibility now that all of us become what we already are and that the promise of Christmas, the incarnation, God's affirmation of our humanity and its goodness is something that is part of how we understand the Christmas message, why it is so important to Anglican Christians, that this is a powerful testimony of God's way with the world. Father Keating, I tell you all the time, said, we are not God, but our true self is God. And Christmas is the time to think about that powerful truth and how that animates people and can have the power to convert and to change people's lives. So the readings, in some form, all of them, are about either restoration or fulfillment in today's lectionary, from Jeremiah, from Ephesians, and from Matthew's Gospel. Jeremiah... Uh, exercised his prophetic ministry probably somewhere in the 500s BC, the late 580, somewhere in there. And remember, I just did a little piece of information. His secretary was Baruch, not Bernard Baruch, but Baruch, who was uh, has an apocryphal book or a book in the in the uh, apocryphal literature. Uh, that that we read as Episcopalians and Roman Catholics read and Eastern Orthodox read, but most Protestants don't read it. So Baruch was taking this all down. And for Jeremiah, this is a pretty upbeat thing. He's talking about uh, the... He's actually writing, or this book, this this piece of Jeremiah was written about a hundred years after the events that he described. And what he's describing is the return from exile, from Babylon. And by the time of Jesus, the issue amongst the Jews was, should we understand the return from exile as having been completed yet? Or is this drips and drabs and this process of God's working on, is this still going on? And the conclusion, certainly uh, among those who follow Jesus, was it has now been completed in him. And God's restorative purposes are present uh, in, in the world, and we see them, and it has enormous implications for how we behave as human beings one towards another. So Jeremiah is speaking today about the possibility of restoration and renewal, and that God's purposes are being fulfilled, and furthermore, In this passage, he is saying this process of renewal and restoration is the ongoing work of God always. Remember, Christian people looked at the sacred literature of of, uh, the people of Israel, of the Hebrew Bible, and they said, you know what, from our perspective, based on our own understanding of things, we see here in this literature the prediction of what we believe has come in Jesus and what our marching orders, therefore, are going to be about how we continue to uh, advocate for the inclusive embrace of God in the world. So 
Jeremiah is giving us a, a positive message for a change. If you want to get the blues, mo uh, read Jeremiah, right? <laughs> That's what you need to do. But not today. You feel a little bit more buoyed up. Now, in Ephesians, we have Paul speaking about uh, the process of God's unifying presence in the world. And this is the reading in today's re uh, second Sunday after Christmas readings that allows us to segue to the epiphany season. Because here he's talking about the universal implications of all of this. Paul believes that God's unifying work has been present always, and we see it now in Jesus, and that this means a very important thing. It means that the Jews and the Gentiles, all the peoples of the world, God's people, now can move towards some form of unity. Some people, by the way, say that the most important ecumenical work that needs to be done in the world today is between Christians and Jews. I'm just putting that out there at the group level. But uh, it's an important sort of thing to, to reflect about. Those of you who want to read a book that probably would be good for insomnia, too, <laughs> if you don't, uh, but if you want to read the real scholarly piece on this, you want to read James D.G. Dunn's The Partings of the Ways, which is about how we came unbuckled. And it's actually, I only mention it not because I'm trying to be highfalutin, but it is actually somewhat accessible. So you might be able to find that of interest uh, if you were going to read something about how this unbuckling finally happened. But Paul is speaking about the God's plan for unity. <coughs> that God's unifying presence is the thing ultimately that we're going to be able to rely on when the day comes. And we should be people of hope. Remember, Christians ought to be people of hope and that this is a possibility. In Matthew's Gospel, this reading affords the opportunity to talk about Matthew who is read every Christmas time. But uh, Luke comes into the picture and others and we don't. John, and we talk about John's gospel. But uh, this is a good opportunity to say something about the overall view of Matthew and why it's important in this reading. Matthew uh, is a Jewish Christian. He may very well have been a rabbi. The gospel that is attributed to him was written probably between 85 and 90 <coughs> AD. And he is, his co congregation is one, as I've mentioned to you before, that uh, has now become 80% Gentile. Matthew is interested in advocating for a point, this point of view. Jesus, in his words and in his works and in his ministry, represents the embodiment of the new Torah. God gave us the Torah, the first five books, the law, and now we have seen it uh, come into play with Jesus, uh, the new Torah. So who he is and what he says and what he does is the new Torah, where the law of love is the operative principle that governs the way you and I relate to one another. So what is he interested in doing? 
he's interested in making some historical connections. You know, people who get in fool with all this say, well, it's a little shaky and so on. But he has a genealogy where he connects Jesus to King David. And today he does something important. Joseph, God comes to Joseph in a dream and he says, take the boy and your wife and go to Egypt. Because King Herod is going to, um, he's gone after the kids, he's trying to find Jesus and he's liable to kill him. So take him out of here. So in this story, Joseph takes Jesus to Egypt. And when he's told it's safe, he comes back from Egypt to Palestine, right? So what that means is, for those who read it and were from his thought world and from his outlook, they said, well, you know who else came from Egypt and brought us the Torah was Moses. So maybe Jesus is the new Moses. And so we're going to read in his gospel sort of a following, in some people's view, of how the Torah unfolds. And that the Sermon on the Mount now becomes the thing that replaces this in some ways. So out of Egypt, here we come. God's restorative, redemptive work comes. Exile and return. <coughs> Moses is exiled and returns, right? In the, in the, in the way, some way of the story. Jesus comes now from Egypt and models this particular understanding in people's minds. I'm mentioning this to you because these themes in the people, the people who were alive during the time of Jesus were big. There were certain overarching themes that were important to them. One was restoration, you know, return from exile, freedom from slavery, the ability to understand now uh, our role in God's plan for the cosmos, and that we're seeing it fulfilled not in some otherworldly place, but in human history, and that we're part of God's plan in the world. So all of these readings connect now to the affirmations that I mention every Christmas. And here they are. The first two are the most important for our purposes today. The affirmation of the goodness of our humanity. And the collect is the great affirmation for that. And also for the second affirmation, which is that each of us are able to achieve the highest of our human potential. Not in some human potential movement, more effective, you know, that kind of business but in the sense of understanding that we have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos, and that as we seek and, and, and uh, live a life of some intention, we learn what it is in big and small ways. Uh, I mentioned this to you before. It's, it, this all connects, and we're going to talk about it in the coming year in the readings. Um, to live a virtuous life, which uh, some of us, at least from time to time, might like to do, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in, in, in the Greek thought world, which deeply influences us, the word uh, arete, which is often translated as virtue, also means excellence. So, if you were to have Aristotle walk in here and say, How do you want, what did you mean when you said arete? 
he would mean a virtuous person in the public realm uh, engaging <coughs> one another is going to seek to pursue excellence and to make a difference in relationship and not merely to understand the pursuit of excellence as some navel-gazing exercise, although as you do this and you seek the good in your life, you will discover that your internal spiritual, mental, and emotional states are going to improve. They're going to move in a, in a more healthy direction as you do that. So the achievement of the highest of our human potential has something to do with how that works. The fact that you and I can be joyful as Christian people is the third affirmation, which means that we have some confidence that the things that aren't very clear to us now or are causing us difficulty are going to come clear, and we're going to be able to, to uh, be more effective uh, as, as persons. And finally, uh, that as the result of all that, the great feeling of, of serenity that comes as the result of that, you and I can be instruments of God's peace. A at every level that we understand what that means, to associate ourselves with organizations and causes, to, to, to advocate for world peace, but also to work in ways that we wish to have every human being find that interior peace where, there are, where our internal demons are somehow kept at bay and in some sort of, uh, you know, we're in a holding pattern with, with regard to that, the, the committee that lives rent-free in your head. <laughs> so that you're able somehow to be able to, uh, to do that and that you can be an advocate for peace. I mentioned I don't have the list with me today, but the Hebrew word shalom, which the Savior would have used when he spoke about peace, is a powerful word that is, has multiple meanings. And one of them is uh, freedom from anxiety. So that's one way that we can understand uh, the idea of the concept of peace. So uh, this week, uh, think about any time in your life you have experienced some form of restoration and renewal. Uh, ask God to help you if you need to work in that regard uh, towards some uh, piece of restoration and, and so on. If Jesus Christ is the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, that means that uh, the tools that he provided those who heard him and saw him can be uh, tools for us too in achieving that ability. Give thanks for that and ask God to show you the ways that you can be an instrument of re restoration and renewal for others. Amen.